Hello there and welcome to What's the History, a podcast brought to you by Claire and Fee. Guys, we'd be delighted if you could sit back, relax and join us as we delve into all things past. If you'd like to support the podcast, you'd be doing us a massive favour by just sharing it with people you think will like it, subscribing wherever you're listening to it right now. And if you're feeling really generous, you could give us a five star review. Let's go. Welcome to What's the History. This is episode one. Um, We are going to uh, put this out with a couple of episodes. So hopefully you'll get a little bit of a taste of what the podcast is going to be about. We're your hosts. My name is Claire. My name is Fee. That's short for history teachers. We are. So we're going to throw out an episode once a week where we basically talk about our favourite, maybe not so favourite, all things history. Um, Yeah. We love history. Because history can be very serious and history can be very funny. But as long yeah, as it's it can true. Be lots of things. As long as it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So we're going to, as much as we can, endeavour to find the facts and tell the truth. Um, so I think we just get into it. I We're both going to tell different stories or talk about different people or um, explore using as many sources as we can gather, not just Wikipedia. That's mm-hmm. a little sideswipe to my students who <laughs> frequently like fountain of knowledge. Just <laughs> Wikipedia and that's it. And actually one of my students once cited me. Ah, go away. As in like something I was like, okay, that's quite flattering. But I think I did that to a lecturer in uh, UCC once and uh, they actually <laughs> gave me a good grade. I can't, I can't name them, but sound um but yeah you're right we're going to tell stories and some of them could be serious some of them could be funny exactly but, um, yeah, we'll do our best um with the because actually my very first story proved a little bit difficult to research but I, I was fascinated by it um and it's just the period of this particular person's life that I wanted to study is actually very mysterious it's shrouded under a lot of kind of uh secrecy for reasons that will become incredibly obvious the more we listen to the podcast mm-hmm. um and I came up with a title I'm going to warn you now I think the title is the high point of this story it's all downhill <laughs> after the title <laughs> the title wait for it just be really impressed now by this I'm setting the bar here for the rest of the podcast it's called why Coco can't be cancelled oh for god's sake here we go can I just can I just <laughs> I'm joking. Just it's great. Throw out, throw out the alliteration there, which is amazing. Okay. So no cancel last, culture. No cancel. Well, she can't be cancelled, and I'll explain why at okay. the end of my story. Um, I think I said in the last recording, the one that has disappeared now forever, mm-hmm. that we were like um, with the podcast, we were basically like the two hyperactive kids in class, like hauled up in front of the whole class with our. You know, when you do a presentation and somebody does this amazing PowerPoint and like right before you, yeah, yeah, like a like an A four, like four A four sheets just taped together (laughs) with like sparkles and whatever. Yeah, okay, I'm going to talk about Coco Chanel now. Coco Chanel is famous for a lot of things. Obviously, she is the iconic French fashion designer, and that's what she's 
probably best known for you know the double interlocking sea design she actually designed that herself which is pretty cool the now um ubiquitous little black dress so you can thank chanel for that um the chanel suit obviously which was made famous by jackie kennedy onassis who wore it on the day her husband was um assassinated the pink you know the pink the ring you know marriage in the Simpsons. yeah i was that, just about to say marriage simpson yeah, with the so chanel suit. that's a chanel suit it's really beautiful even lately um <clears throat> i was watching uh olivia rodrigo went to the white house and she wore a chanel suit like so they're still very much kind of in the cultural zeitgeist mm-hmm. um really beautiful suit as well uh the shoulder bag you know the quilted bag the black one with the kind of chain mm-hmm. strap she invented that. That was actually her kind of comeback um, in the 50s, which I'll get to as well. And then, yeah, Chanel's. Chanel's Don't call comeback. it a comeback. <laughs> um, and then, obviously, her beautiful perfume, Chanel Number no. 5, kind of her most lucrative um, investment because that's the thing that sells the most. And that was made famous by uh, none other than Marilyn Monroe when she was asked what she slept in, which is... Oh, it's such a question female celebrities would get asked, isn't it? Like, you know, mm. what do you sleep in? Um, Marilyn Monroe said <laughs> nothing. Well, she said just Chanel number five, which is like such a sexy reply. Mm-hmm. You can just imagine it. Just Chanel number five. Okay, no, that's terrible. Marilyn Monroe I was trying to be flattering to her. but I There's me saying, uh, I sleep in Madonna ou the toilette. That's all I can afford right now. <laughs> it's like summer. Dinosaur, dinosaur pajamas. <laughs> Which is sexier, dinosaur pajamas or just yeah. wearing Madonna eau de toilette? <laughs> I, I think the Madonna eau de toilette. Thank you. <laughs> so <laughs> I think what she's probably, what the reason I kind of want to do a bit of research on Chanel as well is because I see where I see her the most and you might be the same on this we've probably a very different type of Instagram follower because I have quite the Insta hun mm-hmm. um, and all my fellow Insta huns all <laughs> 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 oh, the Insta huns they love a Chanel quote so they love a good Chanel quote usually like with a pink background and she says something I'm actually going to read you out a couple of her quotes because some Go of them are hilarious um and like they are they're very instagrammable because they're little bite-sized kind of um very digestible quotes and they're also just they're so feminine and girly so like <clears throat> actually I'll, I'll try and read this out in a french accent oh god <laughs> i hope we don't have any french <clears throat> listeners on the first episode <clears throat> <clears throat> okay so the first one here um a girl should be two things a classy and fabulous okay that's <laughs> I'm like, okay, clearly she's never had to eat a doner kebab at like oh, four o'clock in the she's morning. She's never been on a night nice ocean cork. <laughs> um, now, this is, some of them are really, really nice. Like simplicity is the keynote of all true elegance. Like that's, that's a lovely, um, and actually that's very true for her kind of aesthetic, her design aesthetic, very, very simple, um, which I'll get to in a second as well. Um, this one I think is so funny because it's kind of Orwellian. There's something really bleak about this quote it's really scary a woman who doesn't wear perfume has no future oh damn so yeah, i know i'm like i don't have Chanel. a future wait eau de toilette is not a perfume though is it yeah like you've got you have eau de parfum and an eau de toilette is more like a lighter like a mist i think isn't it it's kind of like so the part of the, yeah, my future is misty future, according to chanel yeah according yeah. to chanel i don't have a future well that's us. <laughs> Do not. Thanks, Coco. Um, 
Now, so look, I've kind of gone through the reasons she's famous. So th- mm. that's kind of all the period there that I've really been focusing on is kind of when she rose to prominence in the 1920s and 1930s. And then 1939, things go quiet for Chanel. And on the Chanel website where their, you know, their their founder, their, their, their namesake, um, they have a timeline. And in 1939, the timeline says closing of Couture House. And then it comes back in 1954 and it just says, welcome back, Chanel. <laughs> so for a period there of 15 years, it just disappears. There was no Chanel. She just took off. Um, so uh, why, why would they possibly be hiding that? Well, maybe it's because she has a bit of a problematic history as a suspected Nazi collaborator. Ooh, um, snap, snap, yeah. snap, snap. Exactly. Now, the thing is there isn't loads of evidence but there is some and there's certainly enough to make this um a little bit uh to make her a little bit um problematic you know for sure i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about her childhood a little bit first because you have to give a bit of background before i launch into um chanel chanel's activities during the war um if we had higher production values this is where i would insert some you know accordion french music (laughs) So I'm just going to make it myself. No. <laughs> okay. So that was really beautiful. <laughs> okay. So she was born Chanel. Or no, she wasn't. She was born Gabrielle Chanel. Isn't that the most perfect name you've ever heard? The mom and dad were really thinking, weren't they? They were. They were. They really were. Um, in 1883 in a place called Saumur, which is in the west of France. Now, she was born into, like, absolute poverty. Um, she was actually born in a poor house. And her birth cert features the wrong name. So her name's spelled incorrectly. I think it's probably still pronounced Chanel, but there's an S in it. So C-H-A-S-N-E-L. Um, she never, ever had that rectified in her life because she didn't want people finding out her um, background. She was ashamed of her, her very, very impoverished child. That's sad, is isn't it? It is. Um, now, her mother died when she was only 11. Her mother was only 32 years of age and she died God. and her father sent her to a convent. Um, and it's at this convent that she learned to sew. So she she um, that's where she kind of began to hone her skills as a, um, I don't know, fashion designer. Mm-hmm. Now, she left the convent at 18. She started performing on stage Um it's worth this was pointing out that Chanel was an absolute just a lasher. She was gorgeous. She was really, really pretty. Like and so like French, you know, petite, classy looking, just tiny little thing, little slip of a yoke. Um and really charming. So really charming, but not the best singer, which is why we don't know her as a um actress or singer, but as fashion designer. Uh but she did make a name for herself. Um, she was very popular with her male um, I was going to say customers that's not the right word alliance <laughs> her, her um, patronage audience fans yes. fanboys and um, <clears throat> this is where she actually picked up the name Coco she picked it up while she was performing which is really cute as well it just really suits her personality it's just brilliant now uh, 1905 I'm going to fly through this quite quickly because it's not um very important, but it does give us a little bit of context, which is important. Mm-hmm. So 1905, she met a textile heir by the name of Etienne Balfon. Uh, she became his mistress and he did. He gave her her first taste of the good life. 
um, he spoiled her rotten. So he just kind of um, made it rain, you know, in terms of um, gifts and all sorts of things. What was the currency in, in France? Was it Libra or something, wasn't the it? Franc, the oh, Franc. Oh, the Franc, excuse me. I thought it was Libra. I don't know why. The Franc. Um, now, in, or maybe, well, the, fr- the Franc before the Euro anyway, but yeah. So in 1908, she, be- she began an affair with his best friend. Um, oh, Coco. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, Coco. But to be fair to Coco, I mean, he was already, he was married. So like, you know, um, yeah. so his best friend was called, his nickname was Boy. It's not the most flattering of nicknames. It's pure um, car. Cable. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> boy. Um, so she started an affair with him. He set her up in an apartment in Paris, so she moves to Paris. No. And he financed, he was the person who financed her first shops. Now, her first shop, she was a milliner, so she was making hats. That was her first kind of fashion design. Um, then she started constructing. Okay, so if we look at the time period, we're kind of coming out of, we're late Victorian, early Edwardian. Um, uh, in France, it's called La Belle Epoque. So basically, what are women wearing? They're wearing corsets. They're wearing like really restrictive dresses. They are beautiful, mm. but they're they're not practical. You know, no, not they're not. They're eat. actually very unhealthy. Um, yes, um, for posture and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. And um, Chanel is kind of like, where are we going in these clothes? They're not practical. I'm not, I'm not able there. I'm just not comfortable. Um, I, she's basically saying I can look comfortable and fashionable. And she takes a lot of inspiration from actually masculine kind of clothing. So, um, she makes, she uses the fabric Jersey. So Jersey fabric, which, and I love a Jersey fabric. So I'm like, thank you, Chanel. Um, it's kind of like an early, it's like athleisure I suppose you know what I mean it's it's uh light it's very flattering on the silhouette it's very um I've, I've said masculine but also very feminine yeah and it it does take off and she's very clever so she kind of gets her kind of very attractive friends and family to wear her clothes around the place so that people will be like oh where did you get that and they'll be like oh my friend Chanel makes these clothes if I designed clothes would you wear them would you be that sound yes as I'm sure you can all smell the bottom up through the through there. <laughs> some like, yeah, like it's like <laughs> so friend. <laughs> Go on to your Instagram. Some people just yeah. I'm just worried about status after this. Some Do. people don't have your back. <laughs> I'm like Chanel's friends. Um so yeah, it's kind of 1920s that her career really takes off so she opens up five um she buys five properties on a street in uh paris called the rue Cambon, which is like um so basically yeah, she buys like five shops and turns them into one huge boutique in um paris and establishes herself here as a couturier which is like a Ooh. french fashionista everything just sounds better in french doesn't it oh it, just... it does it's such a beautiful language yeah um, she also begins <clears throat> mingling in the 1920s, and this will be important for later on, with British aristocracy. So mm-hmm. she makes friends with somebody, you might have heard of him, called Winston Churchill. Mm-hmm. She starts hang, hanging out with, with him. Um, she begins an affair, another affair, Chanel, with that, not to shame her, because, oh my God, girl, get that money, mm-hmm. um, with the Duke of Westminster. So <laughs> I love, it's, there's going to be some names in this that are just so, like, either quintessentially British or quintessentially German. And this, his name, the Duke of Westminster, a little aside, actually, I think the Duke of Westminster was um, a, a dukedom that was appointed by Queen 
Victoria. And as far as I know, it's one of the last dukedoms appointed outside of the royal family. So you could be the Duke of Westminster wow. and not be a member Art of, of yeah, the royal family. Yeah. Wow. So his name was Hugh Richard Arthur Grosvenor. Um, and Michelle had a, an affair for about 10 years. And he was known for being rabidly and very openly anti-Semitic, like insanely. So oh, homophobic okay. as well. All the problematic behaviour, just uh, not, a nice, not a nice person in the slightest. So, Absolutely not. Um, her, the 1920s as well, another important thing, she went into business with a French Jewish family called the Wertheimers. Now, the Wertheimers still to this day own Chanel, so they own it. Um, like, they're not the face of the company. They keep very private, actually, the Wertheimers. Uh, the face of the company, obviously, until recently was Karl Lagerfeld. And he died in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he was kind of the lead designer. But the Wertheimers would be the financiers, the people who owned the company. And Chanel... Um, her most lucrative venture in the 1920s. So what she made, how's Chanel making money? Her perfume, so Chanel number no. five, which is beautiful. A beautiful perfume became very, very popular. Um, somehow Chanel managed to give away most of that to the wartimers and only ended up with a 10% stake in it. So something she would later regret. Mm, yeah. um, so just worth keeping that at the back of your mind as well, that she gave away most of Chanel number no. five to the wartimers. Um, the 1930s, yeah, her star is on the rise. She's very popular. She designs for um, Hollywood starlets like Greta Garbo, Marlene oh, wow. Dietrich. And I'm obsessed with Marlene Dietrich. Might actually do a little, Greta, she's a class. little study of her and Greta. I mean, there. I mean, could you be designing for cooler people? So mm-hmm. fair play to Chanel. There, props to Chanel. Um, <laughs> she, she is. Um, we're like, go on, girl. <laughs> she is um, invited to Hollywood at the request of Samuel Goldwyn. So he's the G in MGM. Oh, um, which is actually. Oh my god, that'd be so cool if that would be his Insta handle today. I'm the G. I'm the G. G in <laughs> um, and he wanted her to design for the screen, whatever. But actually, it didn't work out because her designs did not translate very well to the silver screen because her designs are they weren't, I suppose, ostentatious enough. They weren't, you know, shiny and sparkly and Chanel was very understated feminine and um, it just didn't it didn't translate very well so she came back to France she didn't like Hollywood she considered it very techy um so now we're, we're up to this outbreak of the second world war so we know that Germany occupied France in 1940 so what happened to Coco where did she go mm. but it turns out she planted herself in the Ritz in Paris um which was also turns out that it was headquarters for a lot of Nazis in, in Paris. Um, Goebbels himself loved to uh, loved to go to the Ritz. And um, she was fine. She was absolutely fine. There, was, there wasn't a bother on Chanel. So she does begin another affair. This time, this guy's name just deserves a moment's silence. Okay. Baron Hans Gunther von Dinklage. Wow. Is, yeah. So BHG von D. Um he is it's such a cool name he is an intelligence officer in the Abfair which is the military intelligence wing of the Wehrmacht as we know so he is essentially he's an agent a spy kind of 
thing and um a nazi and chanel is uh, romantically involved with him and it's worth pointing out she stayed with him even when the war was over their affair continued well into the 1950s um Okay, so what else do we know? We know that in 1941, she used the Nuremberg laws, Nazi laws, to try and get her business back. So remember I said the wartimers, remember they were French, they were Jewish, mm-hmm. and they had the majority of her perfume business. And uh, she said, well, actually, under the Nuremberg laws, you can't own a business, so you need to give it back. But they had they were two steps ahead of her. They'd already passed the business on to a friend of theirs called Felix Amiot. And uh, Felix was a Christian. Um, the wartimers fled to New York. And Felix very soundly gave it back to the wartimers following the war. So when the war was over, he just gave the business back to them. So Chanel did not get her business fully back. Um, and again, that doesn't look great for her, you know. But at the same time, you could say that it was just a business decision. It was just a battle of it and maybe nothing to do with them being Jewish. Who knows? Now, um, this is the thing in this is what I actually had a little bit of a, I had a read of this book. It's called Sleeping with the Enemy, Coco Chanel's Secret War. It was released in 2011. So it's still all kind of all only coming out now. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy that wrote it is a journalist called Hal Weston Vaughan. And in his book, he relies very heavily on declassified German and French documents. Now, the German and French documents um, that refer to Chanel they're real but they haven't been digitized and they're not organized so they're very hard for people to research so you actually would have to show up in person <laughs> I mean I was committed to my research here but um, imagine I was like sorry girl I just need to fly to France there and be back in a couple of days I wasn't going to do that but um this is what he claims to have taken out of these documents. So this is the fact that he claims to have gleaned from the documents that Chanel was an agent for the Abfair, so for the German secret intelligence. Her agent name was Agent F7124. She had a code name Westminster after her ex-boyfriend. No that um yeah, that she uh <laughs> this is actually the worst name for um an operation ever, that she was part of Operation Model Hat. Oh come on. <laughs> I know, right? Like <laughs> You've got like Operation Overlord, Operation <laughs> Neptune Spear, like, and then you have Operation Model Hat. Model hat. It's that like basically, it's terrible. It's just so explanatory. Like it's it's her. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. It's like ding, 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 I'm wearing a hoodie right now and a hat, and it's like if I was in a secret operation, Operation Hoodie Hat. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Operation <laughs> Microphone. Yeah, it was like. Operation <laughs> teacher secondary. Hmm. Hint, hint. It was, it was like she was literally just sitting in a cafe and they went, Chanel, come up with a name for this. And she was like, Operation Model Hat. Um, and what was Operation Model you know. Hat? Well, they were going to use Chanel to broker a peace between the Allies and the Nazis, allegedly because of her connections to um, Churchill, because she's, she's buddy buddies with him. Mm. Now, People, the book paints her as a very willing collaborator, you know, that she was anti-Semitic, that she um, that she was um, very openly collaborating with the Germans. She was helping them willingly. But the other side of that, the side that people have kind of heard, people who've come to her defence, um, her nephew, and this is also a fact, her nephew was called Andre Palas, and he was 
very she was very close to him she loved him she adored him she he was like a son to her he was being held in a german stalag so in a german prisoner uh, of war camp i i had a and, feeling that there had to be more as in why would you yeah. collaborate with an enemy that's taking over your country and well see a I, lot of women a lot of people did that's the thing nazi collaboration was was a huge like obviously issue and after the war the with them or against them and it's this it's is it and, and yeah. you know some people welcomed um that now not it, it's a very controversial period of french history yeah. obviously yeah um but she her her nephew was being kept he'd been captured when um along the maginot line Wow. And uh, he was released and she did secure his release. So that was something. Now, when the war ended, Chanel was questioned um, as a potential. And this is like women. And I'll just let you put this together yourselves. I don't think I'll have to explain this. Just take a second. Women were called horizontal collaborators. Horizontal, like lying down collaborators. Um. Horizontal across, collaborators. Across collaborators. I love how innocent you are. I am. Horizontal is like. Is there an in the window here or something that I should. Yes, there like, is. Okay, a is very heavy. With the male anatomy. Yes. So okay, women, I got it now. A horizontal collaborator <laughs> is is a woman who collaborated by sleeping with. Okay. Um, there we go. With, I it, with Other Nazi people agents. definitely got it. I, unfortunately. I think so. Uh, I mean, why would those women were literally like after the war, they were absolutely pilloried, like they were dragged through the streets. They ah. were just seen as really disgusting because they collaborated. Obviously, with that. they the, the way, you know, um, and that's actually worth a study as well. But yeah. I won't get into it now. Mm. Now, Chanel wasn't um, punished. Um, it's believed that, and she did say this herself later on, she has been quoted as saying this, whether she said it or not, that Churchill actually intervened on her behalf um, and that she was kind of spared the humiliation and the, the punishment. So she actually fled. She fled to Switzerland with uh, von Dinklage, her uh, lover. And that's this is the period. She goes quiet. So for a period of about 10 years, she... Um, heads off to Switzerland she settles down now this is interesting so the wartimers the, the the lads who took over her business um she wants some of her business back or she at least wants money she's basically like you're using my name I founded this business I you know you might have financed me whatever so they do settle out of court with Chanel and they give her a very large cash settlement as well as that, they agree to finance her expenses for the rest of her life. Now, she lives on for another like 15 or so years. So a lot of money. And you might question, they're Jewish. And you might question, why, why on earth would they agree to do that? And even to this day, they still defend her. They don't like, the family don't like, um, you know, anything negative being said about her, which I'll come back to at the end. She does make a triumph and come back to fashion in the 1950s. She returns to Paris um, and this is where she invents. And I mean, we we just want to take a second here as well to appreciate this. Uh, the quilted shoulder bag. So she's the genius who came up with the idea of adding a shoulder strap to your handbag as opposed to like carrying it around in your hand. And, you know, when you're on a night out and you've got your clutch bag and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I've got my drink. I've got my, you know, you can imagine she's French. She probably has those cigarettes, you know, in her little <laughs> cigarette holder. And she's probably like, you know, a glass of champagne. And she's like, Jesus, yeah. I, I don't know what I'm doing here. Um, under the arm. 
Exactly. So she added a shoulder strap to the bag, to the quilted bag, and it became known as the 2.55 quilted bag because it was invented in 1955 in February, the second month of 1955. Very cool. Interesting. And she kind of is now by the 1950s, um, her wartime activities had just been forgotten about her kind of forgiven I suppose people just yeah. were like nah, it's fine it's it's in the past I mean it's only 10 years later but anyway if they're if they were able to look past it you know um she died in the Ritz Hotel in 1971 she was 87 years of age um ripe old age and yep and she was buried in Switzerland um so yes, the the war timers to this day, when that book came out in two thousand and eleven, they released a statement basically kind of saying, uh, you know, she wasn't an anti semite because we're Jewish. She did business with us, all this sort of stuff. But there is some very problematic stuff in the book that reveals a very different side to Coco Chanel. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense that these people, um, that they would essentially, you know distance um her from anti-semitism from all these from cancel culture so this brings it all back to why coco can't be cancelled because her name is iconic and if you run this multi-billion dollar industry where the name chanel is tacked onto it what are you gonna do you know Mm -hmm. so they're they're like no no no, she's fine she's okay and um it's why this is something that has been kind of ignored largely. Um, now, I know there's loads of other businesses out there, like Volkswagen, obviously, set up under Nazi Germany. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Hugo Boss. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Hugo Boss. Um, but he didn't design, but he, he produced Nazi uniforms, you know, the SS uniform. Yeah. Um, well, and this is it. That, like, this is something that perpetuates into this day anyway in our culture. I mean, we have problematic artists, fashion designers that have had very questionable behaviors, you know, exposed and yet yeah. they're the product of their creativity, whether it's a song, a name, a piece of art itself, a painting, and people will still go and admire. Can you separate the artist from the art? You know? Well, this is it. I, th- I think like with Chanel, if, if, if the claims, if, the claims made in the book, which are pretty, I mean, some of them are really bad. Like they paint yeah. her as a rapidly anti-Semitic, um, homophobic, lots of different things. Um, if those are true, it would be very difficult to to separate her from her, you know, her fashion. It's um, it's just something that because I think because the myth of Chanel, the the what's the word, the kind of personality around her, the beauty, the femininity, the quotes, the design, the the interlocking seas, the bags, the, all of this stuff, um, that that has value in and of itself and that people are willing to attach her name to it, but not necessarily want to know much about her personality. Yeah. Um, that's so the that's, beauty that's of history, Coco Chanel. Thank you. That was very Coco important. can't be cancelled. Yeah. <laughs> <Are you laughs> I'm so proud of it. <laughs> Expecting me to be able to create a really cool headline? Oh God! No, I don't think I'm going to be able to. I don't. I said no, Mac. Frankly, no. <laughs> no, no. That's it's okay. I I can I know you too well by now. I have no uh no qualms with that. I'll just cry <laughs> after the podcast is what over. A great word, qualms. Um, but yeah, I suppose just for the sake of time, um, basically, uh, my my history or my research for my topic is based around, of course, problems with uh judging other people for their their background or ethnicity and uh it's about um two slaves uh african-american okay. slaves 
that escape their captors uh, by not using the underground uh, railroad uh, back in the day of young America. So just for some context for some listeners, and I'm sure you're very, very familiarized with this, Claire, um, slavery in America, we we know that millions of African-American people were kidnapped, enslaved and shipped across the Atlantic to the Americas under horrific conditions. And uh, according, yeah. well, the most comprehensive analysis of shipping records over the course of the slave trade uh, is in the um, transatlantic slave trade database. And that would have been between, say, 1525 to maybe 1886. And it states that over 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World, with 10.7 million surviving the dreaded uh, passage. Uh, So that'll tell you that nearly 2 million people died just going across on the journey. And it was horrific. And um, we we know that slavery life, uh, you know, we know that people, and we're going to call them people because that's what they were, they were sold, they were enslaved, uh, they were treated like livestock, laboring on plantations, dehumanized, abused and murdered. And the options of freedom were very limited for them, of course. Um, the northern states, as we know, especially coming in near, say, the time of the American uh, Civil War, we know that the northern states kind of changed in terms of uh, how they, the economy ran. Um, but for mm-hmm. the southern states, you know, climate allowed for, for cash crops and things to be grown down there, such as cotton and tobacco plants. And of course, slavery perpetuated down there. And it was sort of necessary to their economy because that's what they were relying on. Um, and it's pretty, it's obviously very sad, but I suppose just pushing along because I want to get to the main juicy part of this story. Oops, sorry, yeah. a bit of noise there. Um, so the first part we need to, uh, to just have a quick look at is how did African-American slaves gain their freedom? Um mm-hmm. So from the beginning onwards, uh, some slaves could buy their freedom from their owners. uh, But this process actually became more rare as the 1800s progressed. Uh, Many slaves became free through manumission, which is the voluntary emancipation of a slave by a slave owner. However, Mm -hmm. as we know, many slaves, uh, predominantly male slaves, uh, ran away and they ended up using something called the Underground Railroad. Now, uh, what do you know about the Underground Railroad, Claire? <laughs> Absolutely not. No, um, I know that, I know a lot of people obviously associated with the likes of Harriet Tubman and, mm-hmm. um, you know, that it was essentially a, um, uh, students actually often ask questions like, was it a real railroad? I think those are always great questions because those are things, you know, uh, that's the, the rule of my history class. There are no such thing as stupid questions that, um, right. that it was essentially a way to smuggle um, slaves out of the captured slaves, obviously, out of the, the southern states and get them to freedom in the north. And mm-hmm. yeah, I know that they had um, one of they had like songs and things that they used to they used to give them like instructions through song. Um, wow. But, I would love to hear more because oh sure, my, actually, mine is just very self-explanatory. I did not know that, by the way, about the kind of coded songs and and you know encrypted music. I I did not know that at yeah. all. Um, and that's a beautiful thing about a podcast around history. You learn from the other. You know, you share resources. Well, I think the sad. Thing, I think it's something we should be our. You know, should be learned in school. Even over here, it's such a very tragic, obviously period of world history Mm. and it's something I think it would add a lot of of empathy to students Mm -hmm. um, you know in school say I think it's something that obviously 
yes, it's nice to focus on Irish history. Mm-hmm. But when we look at world history, the slave trade, it's, it's so, so shameful. But it's, it's so important. And like, it, it's students, when we when I do ever talk about it with them, they are horrified. They they know it existed, but they don't know the ins and outs of it. And when there's you get a mass down to ignorance. the gritty. There's, yeah, a, there's a huge absolutely. ignorance in white America, though, about it as well. I mean, they have Black History Month. It's like, why do you just have one month dedicated month, to Black exactly, History? It should exactly, be spread across yeah, the curriculum. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's shocking. They only learn about specific uh, African-American people. They don't learn about all of the other African-American figures that influence exactly. the outcomes. It's yeah. shocking. But yeah, the, the the Underground Railroad, it was essentially said it was a network of people and African-American as well as white people offering shelter and aid to escaped enslaved people from the south. Mm-hmm. So they're going north. That's the aim. And anyway, get up into the northern unionist states, we'll just say for now. Um, yeah. But the exact dates of its existence are not known, but it's, it operated from the late 18th century right up to the Civil War. And at which point its mm-hmm. efforts continued afterwards, but like nobody needed to yeah. be so secretive about it. Um, you know, yeah. obviously the, the Confederates were well aware that many slaves were trying to escape uh, mm-hmm. via this route. And uh, just the earliest mention of it was in 1831 when an enslaved man called Tice Davids escaped from Kentucky to, uh, to Ohio and his owner blamed an, quote, underground railroad for helping Davis to freedom. But anyway, I just yeah. wanted to give that context there before I move right into the, as I called it earlier, sorry for calling it juicy. I don't know. There's nothing juicy about this story, um, but it has a nice kind of successful ending conclusion. So okay. I don't want to spoil too much, but um, so... Uh, the primary resource, or I was trying to say primary resource, primary source uh, for this particular uh, narrative uh, is based um, on a book written by our uh, two um, slaves. We're going to call them here. But sorry, that sounds very bad. Our, our two people uh, that escaped um, from slavery. It's called Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom, and it's written by William and Ellen Craft. Have you heard of the Crafts? No, I haven't. Okay, so the crafts, this is a, they're not going to take the Underground Railroad. That's the the big kind of weird twist here. Um, Okay. The railroad really was the option, you know, for most slaves legging it like, yeah, this this is our route. We need to go this way. But we'll start with Ellen. So Ellen was born in 1826 in Clinton, Georgia, to a mixed race enslaved woman named Maria. And her father was a man called Major James Smith, who was their enslaver. Ellen, due to her largely white heritage, looked very similar to the to the legitimate children on the plantation and was often mistaken for one of them, much to the annoyance of the plantation owner's wife. (laughs) So a bit awkward. Uh, Um, You know, it's it's a bit nishy gritty. So to cover it up. The wife actually gave Ellen as a wedding present to her daughter, uh, who also happened to be Ellen's half-sister. And Ellen was only 11 when that happened, okay? Oh, that's disgusting. Yeah, just treating people like objects. I mean, you know, and you know what? There's still people out there with that mindset these days. That's the the horrific thing, you know, we... Anyway, we'll, we'll get into get that. Somebody a gravy boat, you know. Just it's it's like, shocking. It's absolutely disgusting. Oh, this was so common. This was so Shameful. common. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I probably should have given a heads up, like the the, the seriousness of this particular narrative. You know, in terms of just, I'm sure anybody yeah. listening 
would be empathetic, you know, and would course, yeah. understand that it wasn't just Ellen as well. Um, but basically, eventually, this half-sister took Ellen and moved to Macon in Georgia, where Ellen lived as a house servant. Uh, this gave her mm-hmm. access, though, to lots of information about the household and its white residents and occupants, you know, as well as the area in I general. I think, um, from what I know, um, that if you were the house servant, you were kind of in a more, oh God, I'd, I'd be very careful how I word this because obviously there's nothing privileged or, or you know, but that it was, it, you know, being out in the fields was obviously the the incredible labour um, yeah. out in the heat. If you were in the house, you were kind of considered trustworthy. You were, yes. um, it was a more kind of, I don't want to use the word privilege because that's a horrible way to describe it, but that you were certainly not as uh, your work wasn't as unpleasant, we'll say, as it was outside. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic point. And you're absolutely right. And it, it's difficult to to insert, I suppose, the the terminologies that we want to insert without coming across as insensitive or, or anything of the sorts. Yeah. But there, there might have been a sort of a privilege in that to be in the house with all these people that treat you like an object but they 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 kind of you know I I feel that white people or white plantation owners they put value on slaves and that in essence is some sort of privilege in a really Mm. really Mm. distorted horrific way but you're right and because of this this uh position that she had in the household as a house servant she had all yeah. this knowledge she got to know the area the terrain mm-hmm. and this would mm-hmm. be a very 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 valuable piece of knowledge later on in her life that's going to come back in now if we go over to William Craft the co-author of the 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 book I just aforementioned and um, he was born in Macon at around the same time as Ellen uh, possibly in 1824-ish and he had been sold to a bank cashier at the age of 16. And even at such a young age, he was already a skilled cabinet maker. And the bank cashier had William work in a local shop and pocketed most of the money he earned. Um, that was nothing new back then, you know. Again, yeah. these people are being treated like livestock, but worse. All about exploiting them as much oh, as absolutely, they yeah, yeah. can. Horrific. Yeah. And um, similar to Ellen and millions of enslaved African-Americans, um, he also experienced the traumas of family separation. So he experienced the selling of his, his younger sister. I think she was 14. Um, he saw his parents being separated, his brother some years earlier, and scattered his family all throughout the South. And Ellen and William met because I think William was sold by the bank cashier Um to the plantation where Ellen was a house servant and they met and they fell in love and they married when Ellen was 20 years old and her in slavery, you see, had taken an interest in William because William's carpentry skills would obviously bring income to his, to his estate. And um, obviously he didn't give two craps about them being human beings. Um, But Ellen and William were very happy to be together and they wanted to start a family of their own, but they were obviously extremely terrified of the outcomes of, of what could happen um, to their family. Yeah. You know, they could be split yeah. up. Um, their children could be sold, you know. Uh, it's a brutal, brutal world. So in addition, um, they were also too aware of the danger of abuse, you know, that, that could be faced by enslaved women and girls. Um, oh, yeah, of course. You know, and I, you know, 
again you they were both, the fear if you were a mother like a parent just the fear that you would have for your for all your the time like just, all the time like 24 yeah. 7 nighttime and yeah. daytime it's just there's consequences around every corner decision and word that you say or every action that you do um and they were both very religious as well and they wanted to form a church wedding but of course black people are african-americans slaves they were not entitled to formal church weddings so what's mm-hmm the only option that will be left for these two people in order for them to to live a happy life together and the life that they want, they need to escape. Mm -hmm. And it's William that comes up with this big plan. And it's mentioned in the book, okay, so Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom, which, by the way, uh, if anybody's interested in reading, it's available for free on Project Gutenberg online, uh, projectgutenberg.com. And it was published, by the way, in 1860. But William wrote in the book, okay, little quotation for you all. He says, knowing slaveholders have the privilege of taking their slaves to any part of the country they think proper, it occurred to me that as my wife was nearly white, I might get her to disguise herself as an invalid gentleman and assume to be my master while I could attend as his slave, and that in this manner we might effect our escape. So, um, you could imagine approaching your wife during these extremely serious times of consequence and brutality and saying, hey, listen, let's make an escape. Uh, You're going to dress up as a man. (laughs) and We're just going to stroll away up here to the north. And we're not going to take the Underground Railroad. Um, It was a serious plan, obviously, that would take a lot of meticulous planning and no mistakes. And obviously Ellen is a bit taken back, but she gets on board. And eventually she starts practicing like, you know, the posture, gestures and speech of an upper class. All she needs to do is like start mansplaining to everybody and everybody like, yep, that's my aunt. I am so sorry. I have a knock on the door. Could I pause this for a second? Bear with me. I'm so sorry. I'll I'll cut this out. I'll cut this out. I'm so sorry. It's probably the phone. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, sorry. It's just me. There's no one here. Wonder Sorry about that. My apologies. Um, I'll just fine. carry on there. That's so embarrassing. Sorry. It's just a package and boots for my face. Um, right, we're back <laughs> on there. <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, so yes, Ellen, uh, she starts practicing, you know, male postures, upper class white man like Yes. Oh, wait, that's more British, but um, sorry, Britain. Uh, since women did not travel alone, much less with a male servant, it was necessary for her to pass as a male. So William purchased expensive men's clothing piece by piece under the pretense that he was picking it up for her an enslaver. And meanwhile, um, Ellen her. sewed herself a pair of trousers that would fit, uh, well, both fit her and uh, make her look more masculine, <clears throat> if you know okay. what I mean. And uh I, if I were her, I'd be making a very big masculine pants because it would take a very, you know, big masculine energy to do what she's going to do. Well, <laughs> feminine as well. But you get what I'm saying, people? Did she just did she just pat out the front? Is that what you're saying? I I would have. <laughs> definitely would have. <laughs> we just think that that's what men do. Like they just wear really really padded out pants. <laughs> I absolutely would have. (laughs) There are things I want to say, but I will not. (laughs) Yeah, no, don't. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway. Continue. Yeah. (laughs) We're almost there. Don't worry, people. Um, So yeah, they also devised a way to get people to not look carefully at her. So you have, there's so much you have to take into consideration here. For example, they would wrap her in bandages and make it appear that she was quite frail and sickly. 
which okay, would also clever. give her an excuse yeah, to, to avoid company and conversation. Imagine having to mimic, you know, a male I voice. Mean, on the one hand, it's very clever. I'm hoping, obviously, that all of this works, so mm-hmm. um, they'll prove they'll have proven me wrong. But would your eye not be drawn to somebody kind of automatically drawn to somebody covered in bandages? I'd be a bit like, oh, what's wrong with your one over there? You know, you kind of yeah. But you know, you're right. Like maybe yeah. they would go over the top, but you know, they. It's really it's a very good point. Actually, you've kind of caught me on that. You know, you would straight away instinctively you'd look at someone. But, uh, but uh, if it, I mean, if it worked, you know, brilliant, it worked. It does. That's that's the good thing. You're like, yeah. spoiler alert. Ah, uh, well, well, there's still some horrific stuff coming. Very oh, just okay. heartbreakingish. But um, they like they put her arm into a right, uh, her right arm into a sling to avoid situations where she might have to write stuff down or sign anything. Um, because they actually both of them could not read or write at the time. So again, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, imagine her having to, to sign something and not yeah. making a few squiggles. Um, to make sure that she wouldn't have to read anything, Ellen would also wear a pair of tinted glasses, suggesting that her eyesight was very poor. In addition, they now this is important that uh, this part, they were able to secure passes from their enslavers that would grant them a few days off, meaning. Um, they'd have a few days head start before anyone realized, wait, where are they? Oh God, they oh, ran away. That's clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so they've, they've really put the, the jigsaw together and yeah, just on a slight little tangent, but uh, very relate are very like, you know, this obviously relates. We know the consequences of if slaves, uh, slaves were, you know, caught, you know, after failing an escape, uh, which is obviously just terrifying. Uh, just, just to take this into consideration for, for listeners that wait, while William and Ellen are, are running away, they have to think about this, that if they're caught, um, many fugitive mm-hmm. slaves were flogged, branded, mm-hmm. jailed, sold back into slavery, slavery excuse me, um, or murdered. <laughs> they were murdered. I mean, it's not killed, it's murder. Um, mm. So for the slaves traveling, say, north uh, on the Underground Railroad, they were still in danger as well when they'd enter the northern states. Um, and so, anyway, let's go back to the, the, the main point here. On the night of December 21st, 1848, William cut Ellen's hair to the nape of her neck. She put on her big man trousers and her top hat, said a prayer, and they set off. So, we're, we're pretty much three quarters way through this story. So um, I'm so invested. I'm actually so invested in this story. You've watched Argo, haven't you? You know, that, yeah. that intensity, that sick feeling. If you didn't know the story oh. of Argo, you know, that edge of the siege kind of feeling. I, like, I knew the story and I was still, it was just. Oh, I didn't. Tension. I was, I was completely ignorant watching it. I was like, show. It was great. <laughs> great. Um, that's like me right now. In my head, there's like, you know, bum, 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 <laughs> And I'm like, come on, the crap. This is the music we play when we're, we're getting late for work in the traffic. <laughs> um, we just play it in our heads <laughs> over and over. I am never late for work. Okay, go on. You, ne- you never are, actually. You're very punctual. I friend, never am. Yeah, yeah, there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Incredibly punctual person. <laughs> Something you'll get to know about me. Go on. <laughs> All right. I, I'm, I figured it out for 30 years, girl. <laughs> and so the first leg of their journey was by train. And it was also okay. where they would experience the first few of a narrow missus. So William had to ride in a separate car from Ellen, who sat with the white passengers. And as he was boarding, he spotted the owner of the cabinet maker's shop on the platform. And as the shop owner came to investigate, William shrank down in his seat and braced himself 
But then the train left just in time. Meanwhile, (laughs) meanwhile, Ellen had her own scare. Um, The passenger next to her was a friend of her enslavers. And she assumed at first he'd been sent to catch her. But then he said, (gasps) quote, it's a very fine morning, sir. To avoid talking to him, Ellen pretended to be deaf until he got off the trains. Brilliant. That's... No, I mean, that's, that's actually that brilliant. You know, when, when I was going to say that, you don't want someone to sit down next to you. Just pretend. I can't. I, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I don't mean but to be I, sensitive at I, all. Um, like, I was going to say, I was going to ask that, was she going to put on like a man voice? Was she going to be like, you know, like, was she going to do better her voice or whatever? But she probably... Mm. Would probably be better just to not speak at all. Yeah, just don't speak. Have bad eyesight. Have a bad arm and be bandaged up. Basically, <laughs> I just mean, covered all bases. That if it. if yeah. you were feeling antisocial and getting on the the public transport, that's what you need to do to just not talk to anybody. But for yeah. for Ellen, obviously, her her reasons would have been absolutely petrifying. And another time, actually, Ellen found herself the focus of uh, attention of a young lady. Uh, thanks to her upscale clothing and carefully practiced oh, upper class manners, I know <laughs> the young lady saw potential in a rich mate. <laughs> she was, yeah. Ellen was just like, girl, no, no, like, no, no, Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> go away. No, <laughs> no, no, you don't want this. Um, the woman even wrote oh. down the recipe for a family remedy, suggesting it for Ellen's ailments. Terrified of accidentally looking at it upside down. Ellen simply nodded a quick thanks and stuffed the note into her pocket before presumably legging it. Um, So all these little encounters, everything as a consequence. And you can just imagine, I'd say their heart rate was through the roof. So that's, it's so tragic how terrified they're, you know. Yeah, it's it's unfair for any human being to be put into the situation because of what the color of their skin. It's it's just Mm. absolutely bat poop insane. I'm trying to be very careful of my words. Um, that poop is, is mm, yeah, that poop's that nice, great. isn't it? Um, <laughs> but over the course of what would be a four-day journey by train and steamboat, Ellen and William, they became kind of privy to some pretty interesting mentalities from the passengers. And as they neared the north, white passengers advised Ellen to go back south and beware of cutthroat um, abolitionists who would try to lure William away because William presumably is her slave as she is a white male. One man even offered to buy William from her and another scolded her for being too polite to him. Um, Meanwhile, other black passengers encouraged William to ditch his owner once they reached the north and strike out on his own as a free man so they were detained several times as ticket sellers and other transportation authorities demanded proof that ellen owned william and as they got farther north people got cagier however ellen's disguise as a sickly person you know managed to elicit a kind of like sympathy for many sympathy Yeah. yeah Yeah, definitely sympathy sympathy, and just allowing her a winning passage and often getting her upgrades to first class, which, you know, I mean, they probably have never experienced this before, first class treatment. Um, so during their travels, they stayed in some of the finest hotels between uh, Georgia and Pennsylvania. Um, but for Ellen, no amount of luxury travel could make up for the constant fear of being found out, worrying for William's safety and keeping up this tiring disguise. And finally, finally on Christmas Day, they made it to Philadelphia and she bursts into tears and she cries. And there's a quote here. She just says, um, 
She's looking out here. Oh, she says, thank God, William, we're safe. So with the help of Philadelphia's uh, abolitionist network, they secured lodging for three weeks before moving to Boston, where William found work as a cabinet maker and Ellen as a seamstress. And they became local celebrities uh, among white and black residents alike and often spoke to large groups around the city about their escape as well as against slavery. And they became involved with abolition, sorry, abolitionist. I can never say that word. Activism. Abolitionists. Mm, thank you. You got my back. Thank you so much. And uh, <laughs> it gets a bit weird from here. So sadly, they kind of faced the fear of being caught again uh, when the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted in 1850, which allowed bounty hunters to come after people who had fled north. In fact, their former enslaver did send two bounty hunters to Boston to track down the crafts, even getting the support of the US president at the time, who I'm not going to say any profanic kind of names here, but Millard Fillmore. Um, And thanks to the actions of the Boston... I know, do you remember Fillmore? (laughs) Just... Like he's kind of like written out of history almost. People might be like, who? <laughs> Fillmore. I think of yeah. that cartoon on Disney. <laughs> but uh that was a good show. Um, but thanks to the actions of the Boston Vigilance Committee, um, a group formed to resist the new law. Uh, they managed to evade capture by moving between safe houses while allies ran interference, harassing and misdirecting bounty hunters until they gave up. So the constant fear of being captured is still present even if they're safe in Boston, which they're not. So they decide once again to flee. This time they go to England, believe it or not. Oh, and, okay. Mm-hmm, and it wasn't until they reached Liverpool that uh, William writes, he says, um, it was not until we stepped ashore at Liverpool that we were free from every slavish fear. And they settled in Ockham in Surrey, where they attended school. Cool. So this is where, yeah, and they, they learned to read and write and they connected with British. the British abolitionist movement abolitionist i really need to get thank you so much oh just i'm making strides today they gave many public (laughs) lectures on slavery in the u.s and ellen turned their home into a hub for black activism in england uh, hosting multiple visiting and touring uh, abolitionists and she also participated in the women's suffrage movement and was known for her sharp wit yeah ellen is just legit isn't she just powerhouse just, so cool. Yeah, empowering, absolutely. Just representing women, but yeah. also representing black women. But, mm. you know, she was known yes. for her sharp wit and observations and ability to effectively criticize politicians with racist beliefs. And um, there's there's a big quote coming up here, but it says, winsome pro-slavery propagandists, uh, propagandists, I Help me out. Propagandists. Thank you. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Thank you. I'm an English teacher, people. Uh, suggested you re- <laughs> you're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> you are doing um, great, sweetie. <laughs> so basically, some people suggested that she regretted her escape. And she wrote, I have never had the slightest inclination, whatever, of returning to bondage. And God forbid that I should ever be so false to liberty as to prefer slavery in its stead. In fact, since my escape from slavery, I have gotten much better in every respect that I could have possibly anticipated. Though, had it been to the contrary, my feelings in regard to this would have been just the same, for I had much rather starve in England, a free woman, than be a slave for the best man that ever breathed upon the American continent. So, in all... So put that in your pipes and Mm -hmm. 
So in all, the Croft spent 19 years in England and had five children. After the Civil War, Ellen was able to locate her mother, Maria, back in Georgia and paid for her passage to England, where after many years, they were reunited. I get really emotional thinking about that. Um, In 1860, they co-authored their aforementioned book, uh, Running a Thousand Miles for Freedom. Not only does the book tell their their story of, you know, their escape, which is just terrifying, uh, but it also served as a compelling reflection on the fluidity of race, gender and class, you know, concepts that were considered concrete and, you know, concrete in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Um, The Crafts, along with three of their children, returned to the U.S. in 1868, where they opened the uh, Woodville Cooperative Farm School for newly freed men and women in Georgia in 1873. And they finally moved to Charleston in South Carolina, Carolina to live with their daughter. And Aww. Ellen Craft passed away in 1891 and William passed away in 1900. Today, their legacy still lives on, not just because of their brilliant and daring escape, but also their, their activism, you know, socially and politically and their dedication yeah. Uh, to eradicating slavery and racism. And last but not least, on September 11th, 2018, a plaque was unveiled in Ockham in England uh, where their great, great, great grandson, Christopher Clark, now in his 70s, still lives. And on the unveiling of the memorial, Clark said, I like to think that if people are thought of and spoken about, they still in some respects live amongst us. And I would like to thank William and Ellen for what they strove for and what they achieved. And that is the story of Ellen and William Craft. There you go. That is that amazing. Was pretty it's, intense, isn't it? That just was just think. like a whack of emotions right into the face. It was I just know. like, it's that just, was amazing. A, I loved that. What a crazy life, you know? And yeah. You know, we we like, I suppose it puts a lot of things in perspective. If you can put yourself into other people's shoes and their experiences, and that's what history really teaches us, I think, you know. Yeah, I mean, you've got empathy there. You've triumphing over adversity. It's motivational. It's inspirational. It's um, it's just beautiful story. Like, I, I don't really. want to put myself into Hitler's shoes or anything like that. You know what I mean? But not him. <laughs> I mean, does anyone? <laughs> not that guy. No, nobody does. Yeah, small um, feet too. Go on. Oh, I have small feet. I, I have small feet. Um, you do actually. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's kind of the, the the research that was compiled for today. And obviously, we'll have some more heartwarming ones. I'm assuming uh, coming along the way as well. Yeah, they're they're but they're serious. not all going to be. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. But I have I have some pretty good stuff in in the back on the way. Um, okay, I mean, it would be absolutely amazing, listeners, if you could subscribe um on itunes and you could rate if you liked this episode if you didn't like it don't rate <laughs> <laughs> please don't leave a bad just review move on i tried just it's our first on. episode it's our first episode but if you did like it if you could leave a nice rating that would be great if See, you this could is, subscribe that would be this is like too. the do you remember your your analogy there earlier about the students that come along with their powerpoint after yeah. somebody else has presented yeah. theirs this is us yeah. bargaining with the teacher and yeah. <laughs> smiling politely back waving like, our arms around yeah. <laughs> just trying to be expressive but um just in relation um, so yes yeah 
if if that's exactly it, just uh, liking um, or subscribing, not liking. Oh my god, I got into like <laughs> Insta vlogger, like like and subscribe, please. <laughs> no, just um, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, please, or wherever you're listening to this. That would be amazing. I'm setting up a Facebook page. By the time the episode comes out, the Facebook page will be active. So watch the history on Facebook if you could like that as well. Mm-hmm. That's where we will communicate with you all, and um, that would be amazing. So we're going to say until the next episode goodbye okay bye guys thank you bye thank you so much